passage this evening comes from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3. As we just have four, verse, five verses, verses 13 through 17. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Hear now the word of God. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this evening. Let's pray together. Lord, would you use your word tonight to make us honest, hopeful defenders of your name? May we not be cruel or offensive, But as Peter says, make us people whose lives testify to Christ, but who are also unafraid to defend your truth with gentleness and with respect. We ask you to do this for us in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, The other day, one of my children, uh, I've I've been reminded, I'm not supposed to use names in the pulpit, but one of my children asked me, hey, I don't know anything about September 11th. They asked me to recommend a book about September 11th to them. And so it got me thinking, though, about how, isn't it strange, when I go to to college, like when I go to Belhaven and teach, I'm in a room full of people who weren't alive when it happened. It makes me feel ancient. It makes me feel ancient to be in this room full of people who weren't alive when 9-11 happened. And... One of the things, and it got me thinking back to 9-11 and just sort of how one thing that people who weren't alive when it happened can't appreciate. And I think the, the main thing is the chaos of it all, the confusion of it all, just the fact that nobody knew what was happening. Nobody knew if a thousand other things were going to happen. Nobody knew if all the bridges everywhere were going to blow or something else was going to happen uh, because enough had taken place that we thought, how could there be more? And yet in the back of our minds, we wonder. And as the week sort of unfolded, everyone went about their lives and it was not a normal week. Nothing about it felt normal. Televisions were on everywhere because you want to know what's happening. What new developments have there been? And one of the things, as chaotic as it was, as much as people were in shock because of 9-11, as worried as people were, One thing I did not see until weeks later was discussions, philosophical, theological conversations about God and what he had to do with this event. And I remember maybe a few weeks after 9-11, Charlie Rose had a theologian on his show to talk about death and suffering I remember that R.C. Sproul did a radio series where he sort of answered this question, where was God on 9-11? And these sorts of questions came later. They didn't come, though, in the midst of the chaos. As it's going on, you don't see newscasters 
getting philosophical about the nature of suffering and evil and things like that. But when troubles come, we often, the reality is we often don't have the luxury of sitting down and philosophizing about the meaning of pain and suffering and arguments about the sovereignty of God and things like that. Because often the thing that is most on our minds in that moment is let's just survive. And if you've had emergency visits to the hospital, it's very much the same sort of thing. Usually the questions and the thoughts tend to come later. And, and Peter has talked quite a lot about suffering in this book. And our passage tonight is actually another place where Peter returns to this theme of suffering. And you'll notice, though, it's the sort of suffering that happens because other people question us or other people disagree with us. If you suffer for righteousness sake, he's talking about being a Christian and suffering persecution here, specifically in this passage. And even though he's, he's talked a lot about suffering in this book, tonight he returns to this theme. And, and I want you to see this tonight. Whether you're suffering from sickness, whether you're suffering from financial strain, whether you're feeling the pressure that Peter has immediately in mind here, this idea of persecution, the pressures of persecution. Peter wants you to know that our suffering is about more than surviving. There is more to life than staying alive. Because, see, God intends for our suffering to be an opportunity to display his worth and the hope that he gives to us. I sort of think of it as sort of a stage. And when suffering happens, it's almost as though our life ends up being set up as a stage where people get to look in. And people do see when we suffer. People do see suffering in our lives. And when they look at that stage, the question is, what will they see? What will they see in our lives? And Peter mentions two things that they should see. The first is our suffering should be characterized by doing right. And the second thing he says is that our suffering should be characterized by defending the faith. Which That's not exactly instinctively what we think. But in this case, if we're being persecuted, he says we do need to do that. That needs to be a part of what we're going through. And so the first is something the world can see from our lives. And the second thing is something they can hear from our mouths. Us talking about what's really going on as we suffer. So let's dig into this just a little bit. First, Peter says that when the world looks at our lives as we're suffering, as we're on the stage, as it were, they should see us doing right. And what I mean by that is this. When we suffer, we don't suffer the way the world does because the secular world especially really has no place for suffering. They have no uh, understanding of how to deal with it. They don't see purpose in it. Uh, they don't see it as something that, that has any sort of end goal in mind, at least if they're consistent. The secular world doesn't see suffering as something that can help us, something that can shape us, something that can better us or change us in some way. Because for the secular world, you, you might be able to see a silver lining. After the fact, when suffering happens, but suffering isn't something that happens in order to anything. It doesn't happen in order to grow us or change us. It's just something that endures and it produces results, maybe. But what does Peter say about suffering? Well, in just these first two verses, listen to what Peter says. He says, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. 
Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So Peter begins by by making a general observation. He says, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Now, this is a rhetorical question. The answer is supposed to be nobody, right? Nobody's going to harm you if you do good. And this statement Peter leads with is sort of similar to what we see in wisdom literature. If you remember, you go through the book of Proverbs and you see all sorts of general statements about life. And they are the sort of general statements that you can always think, uh, think of exceptions to, right? Uh, lead a, teach a child the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That is generally true, but you probably know people who raise their children up in the Lord and they walked away. So we know, we know that that's a general truth about life, but it's not always true. There are exceptions to these things. Uh, in general, when you raise a child up the right way, he'll live a good life. If you teach a child to believe the gospel when he's older, he'll believe it. Praise God, that is generally true. Uh, most of you, I, I suspect, just looking around the room, you were raised being taught the gospel. You were raised by people who believed in God. Uh, you were raised by people who brought you to church. And so we'd see that these things are generally true. Um, there are wise people who die too young. You know, one of the things that the proverb says is, uh, he who loves wisdom will live a long life. Think about that general truth. Well, we can definitely think of exceptions to that. Uh, one of the great Scottish preachers, Robert Murray McShane, died in his 20s. And yet, uh, how, how, how long did Hugh Hefner live? <laughs> a tremendously long time. I think into his 90s, would we say that he was a wiser man or a better man than Robert Murray McShane? I don't think so. Um, we can think of exceptions to these wisdom statements, and yet even though there are exceptions, they are mostly true. And Peter is, is getting at that here. The Peter's statement here is, if we live a good, zealous life where we're zealous for good, the general truth is things are going to go well with us. And for Peter, that is an argument for why we should be zealous for what is good. We should be eager to be virtuous people because it's for our good. It's good for our lives. But in verse 14, he says, in essence, it doesn't always work that way. Even, even if you are good, sometimes you'll suffer specifically because you love what is good. That's the other thing he says here. Sometimes being good has the opposite effect. It doesn't just make our lives better, but it can even make our lives worse. Sometimes being a good person can put a target on you. Following God can put a target on you and you can seem like a threat to other people. And when that happens, the way we respond is important. And he says there are two things that we should do when we respond to the suffering that happens because we love what's good. He says two things. He says, have no fear and don't be troubled. Have no fear and don't be troubled. You might wonder who would hate goodness? Who, who would hate righteousness? You know, if you go back to Peter's own day, the culture Christians lived in defined the, the worship of gods and emperors as people's patriotic duty. So if you didn't actually do what they defined as good, you were actually seen as a danger to the state. You were actually seen as a danger to your neighbor. So in other words, people with a damaged moral compass are bound to see virtuous people as the enemy. 
People with a damaged moral compass are bound to see virtuous people as the enemy. And what happened in Peter's day, certainly in the ancient church, was this led to charges that ancient Christians weren't just enemies of the state, but they were atheists because they didn't worship the gods that they worshipped. And in those days, this was sort of like painting a target on everyone's back. If everybody's not worshiping the gods, if everyone's not participating in emperor worship, we are all in danger. The gods may actually lash out in anger at us and destroy us. And so the pressure that was on Christians in this time was just immense. Conform to our moral system or we will say that you are evil and we will treat you accordingly. In our own day, it does not take much imagination to realize that still happens. I'm not sure when we would say the postmodern age started, but one of the things that characterized the postmodern age was this insistence that people can have their own truth. And maybe you even see it on the news or you see the way people talk. They say, my truth. I'm going to tell my truth. Instead of saying, I'm going to say what I think happened. They have to say, they say, my truth. It's a very postmodern way of talking. I have my truth. You have your truth. We all have our own truths. Um, And so what this led to was sort of a splintered ethics in our society. You had people who had vastly different understandings of right and wrong, good and evil. Some people believed one way, some people believed another. There was a vast disagreement on whether anyone was right or whether anyone could be right. And I speak in the past tense because I don't know if any sociologists have been able to chart this, but my own take on this is that in the last five years or so, our culture has been in the midst of a serious revolution. We are actually, I think, becoming less postmodern, more moral, and more convinced than ever that there really is a such thing as right and wrong. In the last five years, that's what I think has been happening in American culture. Now, that sounds like a good thing, right? It sounds like a good thing for people to become more moral more virtuous, more interested in right and wrong. And yet it's actually not a good thing at all. Because the difference is the morality that used to govern our culture was informed by religious teaching. By, I, I would call it the haunted ghost of Christianity. But that is changing. Now more than ever, our society is highly moral, but also highly capricious when it comes to moral standards. Um, moral standards are believed in and they are imposed, but they are more confused and malleable than they've ever been. Um, what was approved of in one year is despised in another year. Just think about how quickly the morality shifts and how cruel the mob can be. Um, there was a man elected president in 2012, and he was elected holding the belief and stating publicly that marriage is between one man and one woman. And within a year or two, he repudiated those statements, said that that was evil. And the entire culture, it seems like, turned on a dime and immediately decided anyone who held that view, what, seven years ago now, is a monster and a bigot. Think about how fast in the blink of humanity's existence seven years is. That is a very capricious change in morality. And now it would be potentially politically suicidal for somebody to run for president believing that. Seven years. 
And so just like a, a stop clock is right twice a day, sometimes the angry crowd, the capricious crowd, gets it right. Um, holding positions of racial superiority is wrong. Mass murder is wrong. Abusing children is wrong. So some of these leftover vestiges of natural law and Christianity are still having an influence on the culture around us. But those, who knows how long those are going to last for. Today, the crowd pounces on these things and the crowd sees these things as wrong. But what's unacceptable one day can be deemed quite acceptable in another. What is considered morally wretched one day can become the accepted, downtrodden, defended minority the next. It doesn't take long for these things to happen. And because the crowd's morality is so capricious and based on the moods of the day rather than natural law uh, or the place where it is summarized best, which is scripture, it's entirely possible that the winds will change on these issues. And when they do, those decrying them now could end up on the wrong side of the mob in no time at all. Um. It may be sort of the pessimist within me, but I would not be surprised if those who decry pedophilia today are soon treated like backwards apes. It may not be long. Uh, So what I'm trying to say is our society is becoming more moral and terrifyingly so, but their morality is based on crowd rule and increasingly detached from any objective moral foundation and certainly from traditional biblical norms. There is probably no putting that toothpaste back in the tube when it comes to that. You can't remoralize a society. You can't inject Christianity back in without changing everybody's hearts and having a massive, massive uh, revolution from a Christian perspective. We would call that revival. Without revival happening, you don't have people's hearts being changed across the nation. Now, how does that relate to us? That was quite a rabbit trail, or was it? Well, here's how it relates to us. The crowd knows we are here. The crowd is capricious. The mob knows that we hold moral positions that are outside of their defined and preferred norms. We are already considered hateful and bigoted no matter how much we might love others. And eventually, as faithful and historically grounded Christians, the crowd will become more enraged by what they see as our immoral positions. And when that happens, we all have to be prepared to return to a first century Christian mentality, the sort of mentality that Peter encourages us here. He says, be prepared to suffer for righteousness sake. When that happens, Peter says, have no fear of them. Literally, the Greek says, do not be afraid with fear of them. Do not be afraid with fear. Do not be troubled. It violates our sense of justice to see good people picked apart by these new moral police. Um, The same people who would drive Chick-fil-A away as an evil and immoral business today will object to us or our children finding gainful employment in the years to come. Um, This is likely the sort of situation we're in for if things continue as they are. And yet Peter says, do not be afraid with fear of them, nor be troubled. Now, why shouldn't we? Why shouldn't we be afraid? Why shouldn't we be troubled? Doesn't it make you feel troubled to see a Christian business not welcome in a place where people are supposed to be able to live? 
Well, the answer is in verse 17. He says, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So why shouldn't we fear? Because when we suffer, we're suffering under the hand of a good God who does love us. That's the answer Peter gives us. And the call is, keep doing what's right. Stay eager for what's good. Don't compromise because the reason why you suffer should matter to you. And it matters to God. It matters to God. We know that because Peter says so here. So if you suffer for doing good, God knows it and God does see it. Keep the faith. Stay the course. Do not fear. Suffer well. Do what is right. Now, earlier I said that Peter tells us we should respond to unjust suffering and persecution with two things. Don't fear and don't be troubled. But he actually mentions a third way that we should respond. And that's our second point tonight, second half of the sermon. And that is defend the faith. We should defend the faith. The last point was a point about our lifestyle and the way we live. It was about the way unbelievers can see us living But this point is about what we say to unbelievers. It's about what they hear from us about how they see us living. It's about the words we speak. So in verse 15, Peter puts it very clearly. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. There is a word for what Peter calls Christians to here, and the word we use at least today is apologetics. Peter says, be prepared to make a defense. And the word defense here is the Greek word apologia. And that word just means answer, defense, response. Um, it's a term for the court. It's a term for where someone would accuse you, so you would be allowed an opportunity to give an answer, to give a reply. Sort of like what we saw Paul doing in the text this morning when he was before Felix. And Peter says, you shouldn't just look at apologetics as a hobby. You shouldn't look at apologetics as something that is for people who are more gifted. But Peter is very clear here. This is something all Christians have a duty to do. It's something we're all called to. He calls apologetics the way that we honor Christ the Lord as holy in our lives. And that is not something that's optional. That's not something that we get to say, eh, that's not really my thing. No, he's calling all Christians to this. And what he teaches us, even with this little phrase, is that defending the faith is something that first starts in our own heart before we do anything else. Um. And he doesn't just stay in the heart, though. He doesn't just say, honor Christ is holy in your heart and sort of hide out when the Mormons knock on your door. Um, (laughs) He says, always be prepared to make a defense. Now, uh, we have all kinds of people that we interact daily with, and sometimes the people you run into are not going to be the same people that that I run into. I've uh, heard from church members who have family members that are Roman Catholics, And so when I get phone calls from them or text messages or emails from them asking for advice, the thing they need to know about is questions related to Roman Catholicism. They need to be prepared for that family interrogation that happens every time there's a holiday get-together 
Why don't you guys go to the Mass? Why don't you guys pray to Mary? Why don't you guys bow down to idols? And they need to be able to answer those questions. Um, but, you know, maybe that's not your environment. Maybe you don't have Roman Catholic family, family members. Maybe you work in a secular workplace and people challenge you on God's existence. You know, maybe you're on a college campus or something like that and everyone around you is an unbeliever. In your case, you need to be prepared to answer those kind of questions. Maybe study up on evolution. Maybe learn to respond to people who think that evolution explains how complex creatures like ourselves can possibly exist. Um, Maybe you don't have those issues. Maybe you're not surrounded by a lot of secular people. But if you have a house... Your door has been knocked on by Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, probably, unless, they just, unless there's just a, a dead zone around your house and the Mormons don't come anymore because you've scared them all off or something like that. Um, uh, maybe you're just secretly terrified when they come and you hide. You think, no, I don't have time for this conversation. I don't know all the stuff that I'm supposed to know. This is for the preacher to do because I'm not equipped for this or something like that. And maybe you just don't answer the door when they come around. When the Mormons came to my house the last time I asked them, I I said, how have your conversations in the neighborhood been? And they said, well, like every house we knock on the door, nobody answers. I thought, these people are all home. They just know the Mormons are knocking. Um, And we need to be prepared. We need to be prepared for that. Um, Or maybe you're concerned about the moral mob. And you're worried maybe you won't be able to explain your moral moral positions very well or very clearly, then it's time for you to learn why Christians believe what they believe, why the church has always believed and consistently taught the sexual ethics that we hold to. Get your roots down deep. The the list of ways Christians need to be able to defend the faith is as endless as the list of errors that we run into. Uh, But this doesn't mean you need to know everything about everything. Um, It might mean that you need to brush up in the areas where you do find yourself being challenged by others, though. It's like Peter says, Be prepared to make a defense. Be prepared to make a defense. He doesn't say you have to be ready to do the best anybody's ever done. He doesn't say you have to become Ravi Zacharias or some other famous apologist before you can answer your door. Um, Peter's also very clear that the way we defend the faith matters. The way we do it matters. I, I know people who defend the faith. They are so intelligent They have the right position, and they are so cruel in the way that they talk to other people who aren't believers. I think, I know I've told this story before, but it's just maybe the best illustration of it. When we were handing out gospel tracts to the Mormons in Arizona and Tempe at the temple, and on the other side of the street was these scary, angry King James only Baptists, and They carried signs with pictures of Joseph Smith burning in hell, and they were making fun of Mormon underwear that they wear for their marriage ceremonies. And they had a bullhorn, and they were yelling at the Mormons, and they were making fun of the Mormons. And, you know, I have to tell you, they made our job just handing out tracts and trying to talk to people very difficult. Very difficult. Because the perception was, hey, we were with those guys. Peter says, when you defend the faith, do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience. So for Peter, the way we defend the faith seems to be as important as whether we do it. Uh, If we're cruel and we're mocking and we're bitter and we're sarcastic and we talk down to people and we act superior, 
that badly reflects on the character and nature of God. And the reason why is because Peter says our defense of the faith, our apologetics is rooted in the holiness of Christ. He says, set apart Christ in your heart as holy and let that be the fountain out of which your apologetic comes, out of which you defend the faith. And what is the character of Jesus? Well, I think one of the best places where we see this is in Matthew eleven twenty nine. He says, I am gentle and humble in heart. Can you say that about the way that you talk to and talk about unbelievers? Sometimes we forget that the most stubborn unbeliever is actually a deeply hurt person who is reaching around for any solution they can find to their predicament. And yet they hate the one true answer that really is out there. And sometimes we forget that that is us apart from the spirit. We lose our humility once we have been rescued and suddenly we have this superior attitude as though we rescued ourselves. And we start to think of this person that's challenging us as other and almost inhuman and it helps us to write off their unbelief. It helps us to become less uncomfortable with their unbelief, but it won't give us an ounce of love for them. Peter says, give the reason for your hope, but do it with gentleness and respect. This person is made in God's image, after all. This person is a picture of you. Have you ever met somebody who's an unbeliever and you see yourself, you see yourself in their unbelief? You see your, your own history of skepticism, your own history of rebellion. You see your own sins in them. This person is a picture of what would have happened to you if God had left you alone. How can we not have incredible love for somebody like that? Are you taking this command seriously? Are you, are you ready to obey God here? Do you, are you saving this for the so-called experts to do? You know, you, you may not be called experts. You may, you may not be called to be an expert, but... As you get older and as you run into more unbelievers and as you have more conversations with people who are skeptical, you should be becoming more competent at this. Because, see, Peter doesn't relegate this to the experts. If you're a Christian, this is your calling here. Are you prepared to make a defense, even if it's a modest defense? But are you ready to do that? Part of the way you could do this is you go ahead and you open the door for the Mormons, even though they're going to say something that you don't know an answer to. You open the door for the Jehovah's Witness. You invite them in. You make them a cup of caffeine-free tea. And you sit down and you, and you talk to them. You ask them what they believe. And when you talk to them, what you're going to do is you're going to learn that there are things you need to brush up on. And so you just tell them when you don't know the answer to things uh, because they're nice people. They're not going to get scary. They're not going to get mean. But being able to say, I don't know, is fine. And, and, it, and it shouldn't make you feel bad. I, I guarantee you there are questions you, that they don't know the answer to. And they will tell you when they don't know the answer to it. So what you do is you take the truths you've been taught. You have, this is a church of people who have been hearing the word for a number of years. You have... Uh, a history of being preached the Bible and reading the Bible and, and being prayed the Bible and seeing the Bible. You are, this is a congregation of people that know the scriptures well. 
And what needs to happen here is you take the truths that you've been taught and you do your best. And it's okay if you don't blow this person out of the water. Uh, I have hung out with seminary students who have been very, very skillful debaters, and they tend not to blow people out of the water because you don't see people convert right there on the spot and say that they were wrong. People always have an argument. But the point for Peter is not that we change people's minds and hearts. It's that we make a defense and that we do it with integrity. It's a worshipful thing to defend the faith the best that you can. And it's something that you learn from. And it's something you get better at as time goes on. So, so this is not a hobby. Think of what Peter says here as a command that's not just for the famous apologetics guys, but it's something that every Christian is called to be able to do one way or another. We are all called to defend the faith. But here's the conclusion of the matter. It's sort of the invisible third point of the outline, and it is decision. You see, the work of defending the faith and the work of doing right happens long before the opportunity to do it arises. Peter makes clear to us we will suffer. We will be put in situations that test us. We will be tempted to be hopeless. But before that happens, we must prepare we must make a decision that we will remain hopeful and do right. And when we do that, it will confuse the world to no end. They are meant to watch us and see us suffer. And then the questions come. Why is that person hopeful? Why is that person still joyful? Why does this person still have hope even though I can't imagine how I'd be hopeful In that situation, that's what's meant to happen. We are meant to be puzzles to the watching world. And when that happens, when we puzzle them, that is our foot in the door. That is our opportunity to give our answer. That is our opportunity to defend the faith with gentleness, with humility, and with respect. Let's pray. Lord, I pray tonight for those who suffer. First and foremost, whether they suffer because of persecution or if they suffer because of the fallen world we live in with all its thorns and thistles and pains and sufferings that come with it. I pray that you would give them hope, give them such hope that it confuses the watching world. And make that hope an opportunity for the onlookers to marvel and say, their God is great. Or if they're confounded, make it an opportunity for them to ask us the question Peter assumes, why? Why do you have this hope? Why haven't you given up? And the answer is, God is great and he is real. Make us faithful to answer the questions when they come and give us opportunities to do just that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.